Thank you for listening to the Healthcare Podcast with Dr. K and Lindsay, where we aim to uncover the myths of modern healthcare to help families discover cost transparency, improved access, and innovation. Dr. John Kaiser is a practicing OBGYN and the president of Salser Health. And Lindsay Heiner is a healthcare advocate and a mother of four kids. Now, let's talk healthcare. Dr. K, good to be back with you. Good to be here again. Good seeing you. How have you been doing? I've been doing great. Keeping busy, always. How about you? Same thing. Life (laughs) continues on. It's always a little hectic, but that's great. It is. That's right. Um, Today's topic we're going to be talking about today is something that's very, very important, but it's also something that's very sensitive. We're going to be talking about the opioid crisis here in America. And I think it's a sensitive thing because I think that people maybe don't think that this apply to them or could ever really apply to them, but then it impacts families all over. It impacts people that you may know and you may not know that they're struggling with something like this, or there's people out there that are just feeling very alone. Uh, So Dr. K, do you think that people realize that the opioid crisis includes um, prescription pills in addition to illegal drugs? I think that's been a big change over the last several years. And I think there's a long history that goes into the current status of where we're at in the United States and the world uh, on the problem with pain management, um, prescription overuse, uh, addiction problems. Um, And I think it's really important for us to kind of talk about these issues now um, and kind of give a perspective on a couple different aspects of it. So hopefully that's what we'll get to today. Great. And we have two phenomenal guests with us today. Um, If you'd like to introduce... Yeah. So first, I'd like to thank Dr. Shane Maxwell for joining us today. Uh, Dr. Maxwell is a pain physician, and I'll ask you to ask him to give you his background a little bit. He's worked with us in Saltzer before, and he's with another group now. He's a great... uh, He was a great colleague with us and has helped a lot of people um, in the community. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And we have... Oh, yeah. And we also have Jason Coombs here. And he started Brickhouse Recovery here in the Treasure Valley. He um, has an amazing personal story that led his pathway to get there. And now he's an advocate, he's an author, and he's somebody that's really dedicated his life to helping other people get clean and sober and make positive improvements in their life. Great. So let's start with you, Shane. So tell us a little about your background, your training, and kind of what your current role is in the, uh, the pain management scenario. Thank you. Uh, originally from this area, went to medical school in Texas and eventually made my way to the East Coast in North Carolina. I was at North Carolina Baptist Hospital and did a kind of a traditional medical training with uh, neurology. So I'm a board certified neurologist. And then from there, uh, somehow kind of fell into pain management, got the idea of watching it. And there was a, a great group in our area that it was an anesthesia based kind of an interventional pain management program, which is where most of the pain management training occurs is through things like you know injections and epidurals. And along that line, you learn about medication management. So board certified both in pain management and in, in neurology. And then came back here to Boise and have been in this area in a couple different practices. And again, worked with Seltzer for, I think, five years. Yep. And uh, gracious words from Dr. Kaiser. And now I'm with a group here in town, Idaho Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Yeah, great. So, so uh, do you think that, what is the percentage of physicians that uh, have an anesthesia training that work in pain medicine versus a... Uh, a neurology background? Uh, percentages, I don't know, but there's three basic ways that people go about getting into, if you see a pain management physician, the three most common lines of training, most common of all is anesthesia. I'd say probably 
90% of their anesthesia trained. So they spent four years learning how to put people to sleep and wake them up. And in that, they learn how to do a lot of injections. And that's what usually gets their interest is learning how to do the injections. Uh, the second group is probably the physical medicine and rehabilitation specialists. They deal with post-hospitalizations, lots of post-stroke, post-orthopedic injuries, things like that. And so in that line, they see a lot of pain management difficulties. And then probably the least common is is mine is neurology. There aren't a lot of uh, neurology trained physicians that go into pain management. So I'm a little bit of a, I guess, a unicorn on that standpoint. <laughs> and then you get a few others that come from different other sports medicine or family practice. But those those other three are probably the top that develop into a pain management fellowship training. Great, great. So what um, common conditions are referred to you? Probably for, in my practice in particular, mostly spine. In the group I'm with, we have a lot of rehabilitation specialists so that we see a lot of extremity issues. So uh, the typical is the 40-year-old guy who works on a construction crew who picked up something he wasn't supposed to and didn't have help there, and he, he twists his back, and, and whether it's a, a simple strain or something more serious where he ends up with a herniated disc or ends up with spine surgery, I end up with those patients either before they have surgery or, unfortunately, most commonly, after they've had one, two, three, four, five other surgeries. So we deal with a lot of spine issues. And then as our aging population, we deal with a lot of the patients with what we would call end-stage osteoarthritis. They've had their, I've got patients with both hips, both knees, both elbows, both shoulders replaced. Okay. And so wow. we see a lot of the end stage osteoarthritis and then a smattering of a whole bunch of other different conditions, but those two probably being the, the primary. Do your patients usually, is it a short term uh, treatment regimen or are you more with chronic issues uh, and follow those patients long term? Unfortunately, most of what we deal with is chronic because most of these conditions are things that are not reversible, especially in the aging population. The, the hip arthritis, the spine arthritis, and the, the rest of the arthritis isn't reversible. And a lot of the patients that come to us from the spine conditions either have a similar type of a condition in their spine or they've had accidents or traumas and they've done as well as they can to, to, to heal up as well as they can. But many of our patients become uh, lifelong patients, unfortunately, because their conditions do not go away and modern medicine hasn't had great answers for them. Yeah. So what are the different means to control pain for patients you know, even before they get to you, what have they gone through? And then when they come to you, what are the, some of the things that, that can help them? Well, most of our patients have gone through the basic stuff. And obviously, Dr. Google makes everybody a, <laughs> makes everybody a specialist. And so most of our patients, <laughs> you know, they see and hear the typical stuff. And it's, you know, twist your ankle, break your ankle, whatever it is. You're yeah. starting with the typical over-the-counter medications, whether it's anti-inflammatories, the ibuprofens and Aleves. And most of our patients have taken enough of those that they're dealing with a stomach ulcer or gastritis at this point because they've taken so many of those. Uh, Tylenol also being another. And both of those are very good pain relievers in their own right. But once you graduate past that, you're usually seeking more medical advice. And, and the range goes from uh, muscle relaxant medications to uh, some of the what we call the new term for them is this gabapentinoid, which is basically these medications that are meant for nerve pain that'll help some of the uh, different neuropathic pain conditions like you see with, say, diabetes or uh, somebody who had a back injury that hasn't healed. So that's things like gabapentin, uh, Lyrica, Topamax, some of these. They're mostly seizure-type medications that are meant to change the way the brain perceives the pain. Uh, and then obviously a lot of physical things. They've been through acupuncture and chiropractors and massage therapists and all kinds of those different uh, non-medication routes before they ever end up getting to us. So when you get the... Uh Dr. Google question, do you do what I do, which is, let me see what Dr. Google says. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Google is, a, is a good and bad in its yeah, own right. exactly. <laughs> so many of your patients are 
um, using narcotics to help with their pain. And yes. so what, what are some of the risk factors that you look for when you're prescribing narcotics and, and you're, you're managing those narcotics with your patients? Uh, risk factors for what? Uh, for potential for addiction. Oh, okay. So when, you know, it's very interesting. We get as a pain management physician, by the time people see me, they've usually seen multiple different physicians. And we were talking as a group of our docs the other day, when was the last time I had a chance to start somebody on a narcotic that had not been on a narcotic? That's a pretty rare patient in our group because narcotics have been so widely distributed that by the time the patients get to me, oftentimes the the typical thing is somebody's already started them on it and realize this problem's not going away, neither is this patient. Oh no, I've gotten myself into a mess. I don't want to continue this patient on this forever. Help Dr. Maxwell. Uh, or they've gotten the patient onto doses that they're very, very uncomfortable with, especially with the new change in these the regulations and the, the recommendations. And so they're pushing these patients to us. So oftentimes I don't get a chance to go through that initial, you know, I, I think I have a narcotic that might be useful for you. Let me evaluate those risks. And we look in terms of risks of abuse and addiction are what's the person's uh, personal history? Have they had any other addiction issues with any other prescription drugs, any other illicit drugs? Have they had alcohol uses? Have they had uh, have they ever been incarcerated for any of those types of issues? What's their family history? If you've got a strong family history of those issues, you're more likely than somebody else to have those kind of problems. Um, we look at their also their psychiatric history. Depression and anxiety can put people at risk for those types of issues. And so we, we try to assess those types of risks. And there are, there are some uh, tools out there, questionnaires that people that you can, you can print off and, and have the patients fill those out. And it basically gives you a numeric score of what they're risk factor is continue, uh, consisting of, but patients don't have to be honest with those things. So they, they only go so far in really helping you develop uh, what kind of a risk factor they have. But So our preference would be to see patients before they get on narcotics, try to define those risks. And if the patient is not a very good risk candidate for that, then we really have to say, I'm sorry, you, we shouldn't put you on these. Or if we do, it's under very, very close, tight supervision. Oftentimes those things haven't happened. And so patients show up on our in our clinic They've been on medications for three or four years. They've had lots of problems and now the doc doesn't know what to do. And so we get a hold of those difficult situations and to try to unwind those is very difficult. Yeah, I think that that aspect of your uh, line of work is very, very challenging. I think that's one of the hardest things because you're kind of stuck in a position where it's very difficult to figure out how to take care of this patient and help this patient and not simultaneously continue doing harm if they really are at the harm stage. So I, I think that's really a, probably the toughest part of your, your profession. It can be challenging. Yeah. One thing that I think um, has changed over uh, maybe the last 10 years is this new idea of pain as the fifth vital sign. <laughs> can you talk to us about that? <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess I'll, I'm going to take it back even a little further. Um, in medical school, probably 15 years ago, I remember our probably one of two lectures on pain management. And it really wasn't on pain management, it's just on this is what pain medications. And I know I see Dr. Kaiser yeah. nodding over there saying, I mean, how many how many hours of pain medicine education did you get in your medical career? Zero, unless you'd like parse the 10 minutes out that you get in some other app. Yeah, this is morphine, this yeah. is oxycodone. Yeah. So really, there was no education for any of that. And I remember a physician saying at the time, he said, your decision on, your decision is not how much medication to give a patient. Your decision is whether or not they have an opioid risk. Once you've defined that they are probably not a high risk for the opioids, then the sky's the limit. Let the patient have whatever medication they feel is necessary to control and, and treat their pain, whether wow. that's one pill or whether that's 50 pills in a day. Hmm. That, was, that was my really 
one and only individual lecture on pain management. So and that, that has changed significantly now. And that has changed. Now, and that yeah. was at the time where uh, there was pain became the fifth vital sign. When patients were discharged from hospitals, they would be given questionnaires on how their care was. And one of those questions, because Medicare had been asking hospitals to track this, and they were really they were they were rating hospitals on how they did with taking care of patients, and pain was one of those things. So then hospitals would come back to physicians and say, hey, our patients are complaining. They're leaving here with too much pain. And so physicians who had really had no formal training in pain management, because there wasn't a lot out there at the time, were just looking around saying, well, what, what pain medicines are available? And there were several medications that were FDA approved. There's the questions on how well those really went, but they were some, they had some very high doses that were FDA approved. So the doctors went, well, look at these approved doses. Let's just start writing prescriptions. So it looked like a safe range, right? It you can like go clear range. up to whatever, how many milligrams could you go up to on hydrocortisone? Well, actually or, it was, so oxycodone, oxycodone oxycontin, yeah. they actually had a 320 milligram pill at one point in time. Those have now been taken off the market. They had a 160 milligram pill that was taken off the market. And so now I think the highest that's even available is an 80 milligram pill. But 180 milligram pill is more than what the what the now CDC guidelines recommend in a single day. So, so it was given out fairly liberally, very liberally, and because that's what they were. The hospitals were right. chomping down these doctors' throats to control the pain because and the patients weren't bad. realizing that it could be as addictive as it is. Correct. I even recall in, in starting my training uh, where I trained, we were very conscientious about the amount of narcotic pain medications you gave. And even in that setting, within the four years I was there, it changed. And it changed for this whole idea of the patients need to be comfortable, and that kind of trumped everything else. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And, that, and, and, you know, they probably had good ideas behind that, but didn't think past where that might lead to. And we're dealing with that, that phenomenon now. Uh, so. I think we need to loop you in here, Jason. Yeah. So, Jason, we'd love to hear your personal experience with opioids. Give us a little bit of background on yourself and, and your story. Yeah, very interesting stuff, Dr. Maxwell. I, I appreciate the insight on that because as a person in long-term recovery, where were those high-dose Oxycontin pills when I was using? I <laughs> where the heck those were? I could only get my hands on 80s. Um, no, I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a person in, in long-term recovery and, you know, my entry into addiction, chemical dependency or substance use disorder, um, was via a pain management clinic. And, uh, you know, part, part of that transpired after a, a car accident and I went into the hospital to get my, uh, whiplash checked out. And this was back in like 2003 timeframe. And it was minor. I wouldn't say it was real chronic spine pain that warranted serious pain management. However, this is kind of the, the like, like if we're going to talk about the dark side of this industry, there's the above board side, which is uh, what we've been talking about. And then there's this underbelly, uh, the belly of the beast that I call it, where, you know, these criminals capitalize off of the demand and capitalize off of those that have substance use disorder. And I found myself in that world. Um, and, and how that went down was I, I showed up to work a couple of days after this car accident. I was working at a television station and um, had my life together to kind of paint the picture. I was top new business salesperson. I 
was the youngest salesperson to ever be hired there right out of college. And my wife and I just bought a house. We were traveling to Europe, just bought a new SUV. I mean, on the outside, things were, things were really looking good for me. And then, um, this car accident and, and my coworker a couple of days later approached me and he said, Hey, you want to go to lunch? And I said, yeah, sure. So we go out to lunch and we get to know one another a little bit better because we didn't know each other very well. And he was kind of new on the team. And um, it was kind of interesting. The questions that he was asking me were in and around my pain and uh, you know how, how my suffering was going and things like that. And he ultimately, just to kind of shorten up the story, he ultimately asked me if I was seeing anyone for pain management. And I told him that I was not. And uh, on our drive home from, or excuse me, on our drive back to the office from lunch, he uh, pulled over and he pulled out a jumbo sized bottle of Oxycontin 80s. And he showed me his name on the bottle. So they were prescribed to him. And he said, you know, I, I'm seeing a doctor that's been really helping me with my chronic spine pain. We do hydrotherapy. We do all sorts of physical therapy, massage therapy, and he prescribes the good stuff. And he's like, would you like a couple to, uh, to get you through the next few days while you're dealing with the pain from your whiplash? And, you know, at that time, I said, uh, I said, sure. I didn't kind of, as it's been mentioned, I didn't really have a lot of knowledge about the, the risks of addiction or how potent those were really. And, um, so I, I took those and he actually, I'm going to, I'm going to share this little insight too, because he actually crushed up one of the pills in a dollar bill and these are meant for time release. And so he crushed up one of the pills and then, and he used two pennies to do it in the dollar bill. And then he, then he sprinkled out the powder on the CD case. And for those of you that <laughs> don't remember what CDs are or don't know what CDs are, that's how we used to listen to music. <laughs> and he, he drew up two white lines and he snorted the first one and he handed me the other one. And he said, you know, this is easier on your stomach lining and it, um, and it works better. It hits you faster. And so sounded like some good medical advice. And so I, I took his, his advice and, and I snorted my first line of Oxycontin that day. I'm glad you didn't need Narcan. Right. Yeah. Luckily, luckily I didn't go, go, uh, into, into that space. But what I do remember is my, um, my reaction to that first line of Oxycontin was something that is difficult to put words around, but I just remember this intense root feeling of just everything just kind of disappeared. All, all of my worries, all of my concerns about sales quotas and my inadequacies and fears just disappeared. And I think that's an important reaction to note because not everyone has that reaction. A lot of people get nauseous. A lot of people just like, whoa, that's not okay. For me, I had this abnormal reaction, an allergic reaction. And when you, when you get into the, the uh, research about substance use disorder, there, there is this, this physi physiological reaction that, that those that have this disorder experience that it's hard to understand if you don't have it. 
It's like people that are allergic to peanuts. They have that reaction and um, others don't. But the thing about people that are allergic to peanuts, they don't go stash peanut butter and jelly sandwiches <laughs> around their house and rub their grandmas right. and sell their DVD players to go get more peanut butter. And so then there's that mental component too, which is the insanity of, of chemical dependency. And that insanity is very real. It's that, it's that voice in the head and the obsession of the mind that convinces you that you can, you can use this and control this, even though you just experienced consequences. The same thing with alcohol dependency or any of the others. And, and it talks you into consuming again. And then when that happens, the, the cycle just continues. You know, you have the physical reaction, the, the allergic reaction, and you want more and you want more and you want more. And, and, uh, and that's why it's a bona fide illness. That's why you find it in the diagnostic and statistical manual for mental disorders. And, but at the time I had no idea about any of that. All I knew is, yes, I will go see that doctor that you recommend. How fast can I get there? And he set up the appointment for me on Wednesday at two o'clock in the afternoon. And so we went down, he actually came with me, he insisted. And uh, once we got in the parking lot, he said, Hey, why don't you go in? I got some errands to run. Okay. So I go into the doctor's office and uh, walk straight up to the receptionist. I give her my insurance card. She gives me the song and dance and, and hands me a packet of new patient information that I'm to fill out. You know, and I come from a family of medical, you know, physicians. And so, so I know the routine. I'm not totally um, ignorant to the process, but what, the first red flag that, that uh, I noticed was that she also slid across a set of instructions. And those instructions were for me to um, basically, as I, as I sat down to fill it out, basically I'm uh, listing out symptoms of a herniated disc, which I didn't have. And that was the first red flag, but my curiosity, my, my compulsion to want more was very real. And that's where like that justification came in. I've got a real injury. I've got this whiplash. I should see where this goes. I mean, this should, and besides this, this medical paperwork is just going to collect dust somewhere. I mean, nobody's going to really see it, right? It doesn't matter. So I, I proceed with the process and I go into, um, See the, the physician, he does a perfunctory exam on me, literally 10 seconds worth. He kind of like knocked on my joints a little bit and did some quick vitals and acted like he was writing down some stuff and it was kind of another red flag. I'm like, this is really bad care. <laughs> and we sit down at his desk and he slides over another piece of paper and that is my prescription of 120 80 milligram oxycontin pills. So Dr. Maxwell's just shaking his head. <laughs> just shake. You, you don't do this, right? <laughs> of course not. No. Yeah. That's wow. like the third red flag is I'm, I'm like, well, okay. But that's why I was there. Honestly, that's why I was there. I had had that introduction to the power of opiates. And so I was going to see it through. Um, and then the next thing he did is he slid over some instructions on which pharmacy to go to, 
which pharmacist to talk to, what he looked like, and exactly what to say. Okay. So a lot of red flags there. And I'm, I'm picking up on this. I'm not, I know that this is a dirty operation now. But that insanity, that curiosity is very real. And I had never experienced real consequences in my life up to that point. I think the hardest thing I ever went through was in high school. I blew out my knee and couldn't play in the, in the state championship. So, so what? I mean, that's not that big of a life, life thing. And so I kind of felt like, you know what? What's the worst that could happen to me? You know, you're going to slap me on my hand. And so I, I proceeded and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of get to the point here that, that, uh, after I filled my prescription, my coworker met up with me and he asked for his cut, which were 20 of those pills, leaving me with a hundred and he took 20 and he said, this is how this works. And if you want to go back, you need to schedule your appointment through me. And now I'm learning that this is very much a, uh, you know, like a multi-level marketing so this was very organization. Organized. Yeah. Very organized. Amway gone bad. Amway gone bad. Very much so. Well, five months, five months of this going back. Now I'm paying the doctor cash under the table. I think it's between, um, I remember it being like over a thousand, but not quite 2000. So somewhere in that range, I was having to pay him cash under the table to get my refills. Plus they were running my insurance. Okay. So now, um, I'm totally addicted after five months of seeing this doctor. There is no hydrotherapy going on. There's no massage therapy going on. It's just straight, straight pills. And, uh, one day I'm out mowing my lawn. Oh, and I had lost like 30, 40 pounds. So I'm in, I'm emaciated by now. You can see like the veins in my neck and, uh, you can see my ribs. Everybody was asking me, Hey, why are you, you know, you're so skinny. What, what's you okay? And I'd say, Oh yeah, I'm just training for ski season. That was kind of my get off my back answer. I'm a huge skier and people knew that. But, uh, one day I'm out mowing my lawn and, uh, still remember the sun beating on my shoulders. I had my headphones in and I was listening to a red hot chili peppers song. And I still remember the lyrics of that song. Scar tissue. No, it was uh, Unparalleled Universe. Mm. Great song. <laughs> and, and I noticed out of the corner of my eye, an unmarked vehicle pulls up to my curbside. And I turn off my lawnmower and this gentleman gets out and walks up to me and he's got a manila envelope in his hand. And he hands me the manila envelope and he says, I recommend you get an attorney. Have a nice day. And I open up that manila envelope and I start reading. And I'm being charged with doctor shopping, distribution, obtaining false prescriptions, insurance fraud, and the list. I'm, I'm adding up all the felonies and all the misdemeanors and the time that if I'm convicted that I'm going to serve in the Utah State Penitentiary was multiple decades incarcerated. And that just blew my mind, totally blindsided me. I didn't know that I was like that deep. I knew I, knew, I, knew I wasn't doing the right thing, but I mean, come on, like multiple decades in the Utah state penitentiary. I'm, I'm this college grad working at a TV station. I got it together. You know what I mean? Right. I'm functional kind of, but, um, that's where my life really spun out of control. And what happens when you have a doctor who is pumping out that 
number of oxy into the market and it dries up and you got 300 patients that are hooked on that. Well, they're going to go straight to the black market, you know, cause everybody that I know that has experienced opiate withdrawals, that's their worst fear. That's the worst fear is withdrawals. If you can just get through the withdrawals, like it's not as bad, then you start to recover. But most people will resume use because of that one fear alone, because it feels like the flu times 20. And, and where that story ends and goes is that, you know, the cartels heard about that. And, and so they're pumping black tar heroin into the Salt Lake Valley. And people are flipping over from expensive Oxycontin, buying them $100 a pill on the black market because the demand is so high. And now they're flipping over to $10 balloons of black heroin that's cut with all sorts of dirty stuff. And now you see this surge. You see this opiate epidemic. You see the numbers spike. And that was the first of many drug rings that was the largest in history that was ever dismantled down in the state of Utah. And then, and then that task force started to dismantle multiple and all those patients were in the same, the same boat. So now, now you see kind of why it's not like one day everybody just said, Hey, I think opiates, that's a good route for me to go. And you see this surge, you, you see it through means of these dirty operations that, uh, that, um, happened that way. I think, yeah, I think it's a, we could throw out some um, numbers here to kind of show the trend of how that's been. Um, um, since starting in two, or 1999, people dying from opioids every year, there was 8,000 people in the United States. In 2007, it moved up to 18,000. And, and then in 2017, up to 47,000 people wow. dying from opioid drug overdose. Um, and in the time frame um, that they've tracked um, opioid deaths, there's been 250,000 people in the country that have died. Um, and it's interesting you talk about how people had to go to other means. It's 80% of people who use heroin, they first misused prescription opioids. Right. It's a staggering number. Staggering. Um, so... A little bit of um, history on on the opioids and how how we got there. This um, have, have pain medications have they have they gotten s- stronger at this point in the in the in the nineties when oxycontin came out? Is it something that was really strong compared to other things that people had used? That precedes my time, so. Yeah, <laughs> a little hard to know, but really, the, you know, the, the synthetic medication. So morphine being the original, you've got to have organic material to create the morphine. And so they were searching for ways to create pain medications that didn't require harvesting fields full of stuff. And so that's when the search for synthetic opioids began. Um, methadone being, I think, the, the really the first synthetic opioid ever created. And then after that, you get into codeines and then the hydrocodones and oxycodones. And then eventually, really the most potent one that's currently on the medical market is fentanyl. Fentanyl is measured in micrograms instead of milligrams. Um, so they're all, they've all become much more potent over the years in terms of what, what is available out there. And you mentioned the time release with OxyContin. I th- the FDA, when it was approved in the 90s, said um, that 
it had a uh, label that said delayed absorption as provided by Oxycontin tablets is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. There, the, the, yeah. I mean, I think they attempted to do their best, but ultimately there are ways around that. I Just mean, smash you, it up. Yeah. That or, and then they came out with this one that if you smashed up, it, it was like gooey and globby and it wasn't easy to crush into a powder. And so now people smoke them, um, melt them down and inject them. So there are ways to get around all of that. Um, and I don't know what the answer is. My, I think my expertise is more in the, once they're there, how, right. how do we start to recover? But yeah, I, I'm not yeah, sure. The yeah, sure. I mean, that. yeah, just the, um, I think that just out there, there's a misperception about how addictive it was. And there was some advocacy from the pharmaceutical company saying, you know, there's a, there's a small chance you'll be addicted because of this time release. And, and so there's this in, um, sense of security with physicians that they can pr provide these high dosages and there's not that much risk. When in reality, we see the numbers and the trending and it's going up and up and up. I think also with that, though, you, you, know, you pointed out very much in your first story, Jason, that how you took it for the very first time. In fact, I, I'm guessing when you had your, I'm going to guess you a little bit, you had a knee problem back in high school, you said. Did they give you yeah. pain medicines then? They did. Yeah. And how did you Percocet. feel when you, because Percocet is the same thing as the Oxycontin you took, other than it was a, not a time release and it has some talent on it. Did you feel that same euphoric effect when you took the Percocet during the surgery? Absolutely. Well, you did. So Absolutely, you, yeah. So you had a sense of that a little bit in high school. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in fact, uh, if uh, if I go back to the genesis of where I first took the pain pill, even orally and the way I was supposed to, I had that abnormal reaction, that allergic reaction, even back then. So there's a there's a predisposition going on with me that um, maybe most patients don't experience, but those of us that do, it's it's very real. And I remember um, when that knee surgery happened, I would stuff. I would cheek two of the pills and then my mom would leave the room and then I would take them out and I would put them in the couch until I built up eight and then I would take eight and no one like hmm. taught me how to do that. I was just like, if two makes me feel this good, imagine eight. Like that's, well, that's addictive thinking. Yeah. Right. And that, that just happened to me. And like I said, I wasn't being coached on this. It was like, this feels really good. I want quadruple that feeling. And so that comes back a little bit to the security, what you talk with, you know, medications being given as, as docs, you hope when you prescribe things, you, you know, I, I've never given a prescription that says, here's 10 milligram pills, take eight when you want. Right, exactly. It's, you know, it's one pill every three to four hours. <laughs> Some patients can still get that euphoric effect with even one. Yeah. You hope that the patients, I mean, when we talk to patients who have never been on narcotics, we're very blunt with them. If you feel something that's not, I mean, if it takes away your back pain and you're able to go do the dishes and do your laundry, that's great. If you take it and you feel this kind of what you described that, oh, you got to talk to me. That's not where we need to go. We need to get off that stuff very, very quickly. And so it, it relies on the patients being able to be honest with you and having that upfront conversation and then, then them taking it as prescribed. If it's, it's when it gets outside of that being as prescribed, either multiple pills at a time, obviously the first time with that, I don't want to really call him a friend, an associate that crush him up and hit, hit you with a line. Those are ways that when you get outside of that, all bets are off on how people are going to feel and what kind of reactions. Because that's obviously was never designed in the FDA marketing and how to the types of typical patients they they didn't line up a bunch of people and give them a, a CD line to hit and say how do you feel now. Those weren't the original marketing plans. Um, so as docs, we hope that people do it the right way, but there's always going to be some that may or may not, and even some when you take it correctly can have that feeling you talk about. We have a lot of patients. In fact, we get patients all the time. I wish sometimes I felt good. 
you know, all I get is it, it makes my back pain better. I never get a, fu- a buzz, a rush, a, a feel of euphoria. And they oftentimes come to our office because they hear all this stuff on the news. And they're like, we have no idea what they're talking about because I've never, ever felt that. And yet I've taken care of patients who are in your situation, who have had addiction issues, who've come in now with some new medical problem that requires some pretty tough pain management. And they come in really scared. They don't want to reactivate that feeling of euphoria. They know they probably need something to get through this surgery or injury they're having. And they come in, as long as they're very upfront, we can try to treat them. And But we do it in a very, very close, tight supervision and maybe change different medications. But those patients are really scared. They come in, they don't want to go back down that road of sliding down increasing doses and getting off track or they're taking them inappropriately. And, and those patients are really the ones that are really difficult to take care of because they know if they get too much, they're going to get that buzz. And if they like that buzz, they're going to start to chase it. And it's a really tough balancing act for those people who do feel that. And so there are those people out there. Um, not I everybody, think, luckily. Yeah, I think that's the only, you know, we as I said, we've kind of gone this pendulum and will continue to go on this pendulum. I think that the discussion and the dialogue is really helpful. Um, it, it's probably wrong in some scenarios, but overall, I think it's a raised awareness that mm-hmm. people can uh, identify this may be a problem. Let's have this conversation. I think, I think it makes it easier for doctors to have the conversation now because of it being out there. And then I think the part we probably fall down yet is where we still have that problem and the resources that we have available for those patients that end up in uh, a scenario similar to yourself. Yeah. You know, and, and, <clears throat> My, one of my mentors is Dr. Kevin McCauley, and he's the fe- uh, co-founder of the Institute for Addiction Study. Um, came out with the DVD, Pleasure Unwoven, which goes into the brain science. And it's a really fascinating documentary, and it's shown throughout tr- uh, throughout the world in treatment centers uh, to educate families and to educate patients as well. And uh, his he actually wrote uh, the foreword of my, my new book that's coming out, that uh, and he describes that when he was going through medical school, just to kind of um, reiterate what you both said early on when you guys went through medical school, is there was very little attention around uh, pain management. In fact, he goes on to say that they were almost criticized that they were holding back pain medicine. And and the uh, professionals in the industry said, we've got people with pain. It's your job to treat that pain, go, 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 whatever means you need to go treat that pain. And I don't think anyone back then, I I wasn't really around back then. I was just a little kid, I'm sure. But um, I don't think anyone had any clue that it was going to run like wildfire throughout the world. And now with, with the uh, results and those death counts that you're talking about, uh, or that you mentioned earlier, what you said is so beautiful that, that there's now awareness and there's parameters and there's measures around how to treat someone who does have legitimate pain and then how to, how to connect them with resources if they do have that uh, kind of escalation and progression of dependency on the opiates. So I've, I'm glad that we're moving in that direction, but and sometimes it feels like I wish we would have got it on this, you know, 15, 20 yeah. years yeah. ago. Right. So going forward, is it, a, is it a policy thing? Is it coming from the medical community? Is it on a personal level? How do we, how do we help people who are struggling with these issues? You know, in my, my opinion, I think that, uh, others can speak to the, uh, the, soci- the social and the policy and the governmental approaches and also in 
macro healthcare, but, but for me, um, my focus is in the families. Like who are the most powerful influencers of someone's life? It's going to be their spouse or their parents or their siblings. Those, those folks can have the biggest influence on them. And so empowering family members to not only learn the signs and know how to um, identify if someone is starting to move down that, that path of chemical dependency, but how do they react once they do discover that? Because when my mom discovered, they were, they were in a really critical position of influence. And when, when my mom discovered that I was addicted to Oxycontin, this is after, after all the charges came out and, you know, I, I now had to get an attorney and I was going to, you know, go to, go to prison. If I didn't, they had to, they had to know about it, but it was like a blindside to our whole family, uh, system and it rocked the system and their reaction wasn't really helpful. It wasn't because they were in so much denial that they actually per helped perpetuate my use. I remember saying the words, mom, I'm addicted. And she said, Jason, no, you're not. Like, we can, we could take care of this. Let's just, let's just go after the doctor. We'll get your legal mm -hmm. stuff cleaned up. Totally bypassed my, my cry out for help. Like, I'm chained to this. I cannot stop. I can't go a day, let alone a half a day without it. And, and my, my sweet mom, you know, you don't, you don't know what you don't know. And when you, when you know better, you do better. But at that time she didn't. And so when, when, to answer your question, like where, where do we start? I really think we start in the families because that's where the most impact can be made. You know, how do we react when someone how do we, how do we first strip away the stigma so that if someone is struggling, there is, isn't this secrecy going on for years and years and years and years to the point where it's just so far that the chains are thick and, and, and now it's going to be harder to break. Treatment's going to be more difficult. It's going to be more expensive on our economy. It's going to be more expensive on our insurance company. It's going to be more expensive on our, just it impacts everybody. But if we can, if we could strip away some of the stigma and start to talk about this as, as an illness. And when you experience symptoms of the illness, let's get you some help early. Um, and that, that can start in the families. And, um, I mean, I have so much passion for, for to, to empower and to help parents and to help spouses and to help siblings know how to communicate and how to strip away some of this uh, this fear around the topic to empower them to, to begin helping the right way and that to and bring not it to, into the light to bring it into the light exactly and not to give myself a a, a plug with the book but that that's essentially what it's all about is handing it over to people so that they can learn how to shorten the distance between uh, full blown addiction and long-term recovery and get that, get that tightened up, give them the most evidence-based practices that are being used in therapeutic modalities throughout the world and in treatment centers throughout the world and, and get it in the homes instead of farming everyone out to treatment centers, get it in the homes so that the influencers can learn how to replicate those therapeutic uh, relationships because people don't recover in facilities. 
I'm a big believer of that. And I own a facility. Brickhouse recovery isn't where people recover. It's in the relationships that they make where people recover. People recover in the context of working with their physician or they work with their treatment provider. Uh, it's not just walking into a building and saying, fix my kid and hopefully that'll work. It's got it, there's got to be more to it. So how do we, how do we foster relationships and policies can foster relationships, but a policy isn't going to, isn't going to just all of a sudden magically you know, spike our recovery numbers, it's going to have to be in that context of building trust and rapport and safety and non-judgment and empathy, which is exactly what this podcast is about. It's empowering people with knowledge, expertise of knowing the score, knowing the problem, but also, look, this is happening. Let's start getting on the offense instead of just waiting until, you know, our kid is homeless you know, shooting up before we, we jump in and, and take this on. Yeah. So that's, I mean, I think that's um, where I think we have the biggest shortfall. I mean, I think we have some, some things that have come out of this to help prevent access where you don't need to have access, like in surgical procedures, you can do things differently and not, not have to go to the, the narcotic pain medications to potentially get somebody down that path. I think the side that you're talking about is, it's probably the one that has the most shortfall yet. Um, how, how do you get this into the whole fabric of our healthcare, into our families, of how you deal with this when the problem is there? So I think that's great. I think what you're trying to highlight is excellent. Well, on our side of things, when we, when we sometimes find out we have stories like this in our clinic, one of our shortfalls, if you've got a patient who comes in and they never bring a family member or a friend yeah. or a caregiver in, we find out they've got an addiction issue because they've over overused their medicines or had an overdose or whatever we whatever brings it to the surface says, hey, wait a minute. This is this isn't just pain management now. We have addiction on our hands. It's hard for what do we do? Those yeah, those yeah. services are not very well available. Right. Patients, when you confront them on it, most of them aren't in that position to say, I mean, I've only had a couple of patients over here say, Doc, I, I for five years I've been seeing you and hey, guess what? I have an addiction problem I've been hiding from you. I need help. Those are rarities. It's usually you confront them with it. No, I don't have a problem. You're full of baloney. That drug screen you done on me? No, that wasn't oh, my yeah. pee. That was somebody else's yeah. drugs you found in my urine. And so it's not like we can call their families because you have HIPAA constraints. Yeah, right. you, know, you have constraints. We'll say, because then our only choice really is we give them access. Say, look, here's some, if you have addiction issues, here's a list of names and addresses of people we think you need to search out. But it becomes up to them. Yeah. Our only recourse is to say, well, you're never getting those medications from me again. And then you hope they don't go out in the community and get lined up with another doctor and, and you know, pull the wool over somebody else's eyes. And that's really tricky. It's a little easier these days with someone like the, the board of medicine yep. or the board of pharmacy. Exactly. You do a report on a patient, you can see what medications they've gotten through. Even in multi-regional states now, you can see many years back of what prescriptions. So if a patient comes into you, you can see, and I've had many patients come in, have you ever been on a pain medicine? No, never been on a pain medicine. Yet I've got a three-page list of the last... Mm. 50 prescriptions they've gotten in the last six months. And so I know right then I've got somebody, I've got a hot one on my hands that this is, this is a, this is someone who's doctor shopping. But unless they've done that, we're really kind of running blind. We can request records from other physicians and sometimes they'll say in there, Oh, this patient's got a problem, but other times it's never been mentioned, never been thought about and, and their stories look okay. 
But once you find those things, you know, my dog ate my prescription. I left my prescription at McCall. I need an early refill because my grandma died for the second time. And I make a joke about some of the things, but you start to see some of the patterns in our line where addicts typically can't keep on the same dose. So they start using more and more and more and more. And then they got to figure out how to get more from the doctor. And so some of those come in a way of, I lost it. Somebody stole it, left it McCall. And those are the kind of red flags we start to see. But even those are really hard to confront people on because everybody, they, they'll put on the smiley face and give you a great story about what happened. And, and then what do you do from there? And we try to give them resources, but it's hard. You can't force them to get those addiction recovery services when we think they have it. And that's, I think, where the big shortfall is. From an individual clinic standpoint as well, you just can't get them from me anymore. Yeah. And we just hope they somewhere figure it out, but they probably don't many times. And that's the hard one. Well, I appreciate both of you guys being here and um, giving your perspective to this conversation and this important issue. And I think us being here and talking about it and trying to provide some um, openness to the discussion is, you know, something that needs to keep happening. And I feel like we've just scratched the surface really on, on this topic. So um, maybe can we have you again in the future? Oh, absolutely. Anytime. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. Very, very helpful. Appreciate Thank you it. for having us. Appreciate being a, a guest here and learning from you guys. <laughs> You're the real deal. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. You've been listening to the Healthcare Podcast with Dr. K and Lindsay. Join us again for our next episode as we work toward increasing understanding and transparency in healthcare. care.